Well, amen. It is great to have you with us today. You fought through the snow, the flurries out there. You made it safely, so thanks for joining us. And if you're a guest with us today, we're just delighted to have you with us. Uh, it's great to worship together. It's great to focus on those kind of promises together. And we've been uh, in a journey through the book of 2 Kings. And as a community, we've been really looking at these incredible truths that bring conviction at times, but also bring incredible hope at times. We're going to look at a whole series of kings. And, and today there are a lot of characters. So I'm going to try and take a whole bunch of characters and only tell you the ones you need to really understand because you can get lost in the, in the forest here today. As we've been going through 2 Kings, we've learned certain ways God works in the kingdom. We learned that God wants to be your first, not your second king. Yet all through Israel's past, we see people who've made God their second king or no king at all. The second thing we've learned is that when you remove God as king, when you tell him you don't want him to be your first king, he'll remove his hand of protection and he'll let you face the consequences. Now let's see how well your new God can, uh, can protect you from this circumstance. The third thing we've learned is that each one of us has to decide daily, really, to put God back on the throne of our heart because our self has a tendency to crawl up, as Drew talked about last week, and take back control of the areas we think we surrendered. And that theme continues from, from last week into this week, the idea that God wants to be the king and not a king in your life. God wants to be the king, reigning supreme, and the core center of your life. And so today we're going to look at three lessons, mostly bad lessons of people who didn't do it right, and my hope is that instead of dealing with some of the symptoms that happen in our life, hey, I got this bad habit here, I lose my temper occasionally, I'm impatient, I got these secret habits. We all have symptoms. Instead of trying to fight the symptoms, I'm trying to trace back to the source. And the source of the symptoms of our bad habits, our, our temptations, is usually something besides God is on the throne of our life. There was a doctor in the 1800s, his name was uh, Snow, Dr. Snow, and when uh, cholera was spreading, 10,000 people killed from cholera, he really spent the time to interview each person who had a family member who had died, and he had a map of London. He was tracking exactly who died, who got sick. People thought it was a waste of time. But he's trying to trace all the symptoms down to see if there's something common, and sure enough, he found a common source of all those symptoms. It was this one particular water supply They've been contaminated. And by, by cleansing the contaminated source, it could take care of all of the symptoms. And I hope the same thing can be true for us. When we really see how God maybe isn't on the center of the throne in our life, if we could just learn to worship him and him alone, a lot of the symptoms that have really been contaminating our life can, can be dealt with on their own. So what are those three lessons? Well, the first lesson we're going to look at, we, we see here, is, is that we, we will walk in the ways of the king we admire most. In other words, whatever you admire most, you will walk in that way. If you admire comfort most, you'll walk in the way of comfort. If you admire money most, you'll walk in the way of money. If you, if you admire people's opinion of you, you will walk in the way that everybody will feel good about you. We always walk in the ways of the king that we admire most. So if you want to know what you admire most... Look at how you're walking. Look at how you're acting. So it starts in our passage here. We'll, we'll jump into the uh, book of 2 Kings. Here's what happens. Now, it's the fifth year of Joram, uh, the son of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat having been king of Judah. So Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king. All right, a lot of names there. Only one you need to remember is Jehoram. He's now the king of the north. Um, so it's king of Judah, rather. So he's now the king of the south. 
He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Now, this is not a compliment. <laughs> the northern kingdom, Israel, had almost 100% bad kings. So if you're a king of the south, and you're walking in the ways of the kings of the north, this is not a compliment. And then it adds on the end there, just as the house of Ahab had done. Uh, to refer you, yourself to Ahab is not a compliment as well. This is, this is somebody walking in very bad ways. Now, why did this happen? Well, he married into it. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, so he's walking in bad ways, and they're evil ways, he says. Yet the Lord did not destroy him. So he's doing evil. He's following the patterns of the north, not good things. Following the pattern of Ahab. And here again we see in the Old Testament, gracious kind, merciful God. Yet the Lord did not destroy Judah, even though they deserved it, for the sake of his servant David, David was from the tribe of Judah, as he promised him to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. So here, even in the midst of their bad behavior and walking in the wrong way, we see God's graciousness and kindness to them. People often think the God of the Old Testament is angry, but you just see how patient he is with all the people and all the generations who don't follow him. So let me give you a quick family tree, because I'm going to keep track of who's who here. So family tree. So up in the north, way back in the day, we had Ahab and Jezebel, very, very evil, and their <laughs> Omri was even worse than him. So they've got a couple kids, Joram, ah Ahaziah, and Athaliah. Now the kings of the south we just mentioned... Jehoshaphat, whose son is Jehoram. Now what gets so confusing here is Jehoram marries into the northern camp family. So he marries uh, Athaliah, as you're going to see in about five weeks. I call her rabid grandma because she goes crazy. And notice she becomes queen because of how she goes rabid. But we'll get to that in a few weeks. What makes it even a little more confusing is that Jehoram, king of the south, his brother-in-law's name is Joram to the north, and their nicknames for each other. So sometimes they call Jehoram Joram, sometimes they call Joram Jehoram. So I'm going to try and help you keep track of it with our pieces here today. All right, so what does it mean for him to walk in the ways of evil? Well, as it's been in the past, they're walking the ways of Baal and his mom, Asherah. So Baal was the god of fertility, the god of your harvest, the god of business, the god almost like Zeus. And then his mother, Asherah, was the God of fertility and sensuality, and that almost every time Israel walks in the ways not of God, they're walking the ways of pleasure and unfaithfulness and trusting Baal to be their God rather than God to be their God. So God gives them an object lesson, and God wants him to understand what they're doing wrong. So at this point, Judah has another nation that's under their authority, and this is Edom. And so this, this country, Edom, is in like a vassal relationship, meaning they, they've made an agreement, they need to obey the authority of the king of Judah. Well, this vassal is going to re rebel against the authority of Judah. But it's a bit of an object lesson. God's like, yeah, just like you're rebelling against my authority as your God and your king. So what's going on here is some history, but it's really an object lesson. You don't like it when your vassals uh, disobey you and don't respect your authority? Hmm. Hmm, the clue phone's ringing. You might want to pick it up, God's saying. So here's what happens. In the days Edom, this vassal uh, nation, revolted against Judah's authority 
and made a king over themselves. Ah, I got a better king than you being our king. Sound familiar? So Joram went to Zer and all his chariots with him. He rose by night and attacked the Edomites. Oh, you better stay in line. Who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots and the troops fled to their tents. As it goes on, it says, and rebellion continues spreading. Spreads into other nations around them as well. So what's it say next? So Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day. And that revolt continued. It says, Libnah revolted at that time. And now all the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did are not written. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles? You want to go read it. So Joram rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And if I remember from 2 Chronicles off the top of my head, I think he dies a horrible death. If I remember, his like, intestines fall out and it's kind of really disgusting. So thank goodness we're in 2 Kings and not Chronicles. But it's a pretty horrific death that he dies. So, okay, there was a lot of words and a lot of characters. So let me put you on a map to show you kind of where we are. Because I think when you see where he is and what he's doing, you find out who his real king really is. So here we have Israel, the king of Israel, heading down south, and there's going to be a battle here between Judah and Edom. All right, so there's a battle here because they're rebelling against them, their authority. So when they come down to rebel against them, why? Like, why is this so important to keep Edom in control? Well, there's a fort there, and they've uncovered a Judaite fort that was protecting that area. So why in the world is a desert area? Why in the world do you care what happens in Edom? Well, because it protected a giant copper mine. So if you've never seen a copper mine, this is what a copper mine looks like. And if you zoom in, this is where they would mine copper for their machinery and for their finances. And so he might say God is his God, but really he wants power, he wants control, and he wants that copper mine. As you, as you reach around, you can actually pick up a piece of copper slag. That's what it looks like. That's a piece of copper. This was his real God. What did he admire most? Copper slag. So he had abandoned God because this copper slag represented power for making machinery, making swords. This copper represented wealth. And so, as I said, we walk in the ways of the kings we admire most. This is the king he walked in. And all of us, if you want to know kind of who your king is, what is the thing you wrap your heart in when things are going poorly? Where do you give credit to when things are going well? What is it when you need comfort or peace? What is that thing you lean toward or lean into to protect your heart or to comfort your heart? See, that's our real king, the thing that we wrap our heart in. I don't know if you know the story, but Teddy Roosevelt was uh, going across the country giving political speeches for his uh, re-election. As he was going place to place to place, he gave these very long speeches. So he's working on this multi, 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 multi-page speech, and he thinks he's really got it. And he would basically stop the train, go to the back of the train, crowd gathered, give his speech, fold the thing back up, shove it in his pocket, go to the next location. So he just about arrived at this next location, still got his big old manuscript wadded up in his pocket. As he steps out on the train, huge crowds gather to hear Teddy Roosevelt. A guy jumps out of the crowd, pulls out a gun, and shoots him right in the chest. Teddy Roosevelt falls backwards, realizes he got shot directly in the chest, 
right where his heart is, but also right where his manuscript was. He pulls out his manuscript. You can Google this or you can find it in the Smithsonian. There's actually a hole now in every single page from the bullet that went through that, and it saved his life because his speech was so long and so thick. Now, he still got shot. He's still bleeding, but it's not fatal. He turns to the audience and prepared this speech and says, listen, friends, I just got shot, but I'm going to try and get through this. And he delivered that entire speech. Now, when you think about God, God came to you and I, and he says, I am the king, and I have given you my word. And my word is designed to wrap your heart in, to know my promises, to know my love for you, to protect you. But also, it's not just the Bible. It's not just his promises. I'm also the one who came and took a bullet for you. When you look at my promises, when you look at the word, the reason you can admire me as king, we can adore me as king, is because I took a bullet for you on the cross. Wrap your heart in my promises. And if you're having trouble, like, I don't know if I can trust God, adore him again. Look at the holes in the pages of the scriptures and see what he did for us. That I could learn to adore him, admire him, not admire my copper slag or whatever your king or my king might be. Our second lesson. The second lesson is kind of obvious, but don't walk in the way of past kings. Almost every one of these guys is going to follow the pattern of their father and grandfather. They just keep going downstream, the same bad patterns. So, well, yeah, how do I do that? Well, we're going to find out today that the way you don't walk in the patterns of your past kings is you've got to trace the symptoms down and say, who am I really worshiping? So it continues in 2 Kings. Here's what happens. It says... He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He's walking in those past patterns. Just as the house of Ahab had done. So we pick up here in verse 25. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel. So we've got Joram, he's the king of Israel to the north. Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. So Ahaziah is now king of the south. Joram is king of the north. And that's where we're at at this point. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king. He reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, that's rabid grandma in a few weeks, and the granddaughter of Omri, evil king of Israel. All right? So again, let me give you a little family tree here. Keep track of everybody. Here's a family tree. So we're talking now about Joram to the north. He's one in blue. And we're talking about his sister Athaliah, who's going to eventually be queen of the south, and she marries into the family of Jehoram. All right, well, Jehoram is going to be passing away, and now Ahaziah is king of the north. All right, king of the south, rather. So those are the main characters. All right, let's continue. So next part of the verse. So he walks in the ways of the house of Ahab. Again, not a compliment, walking in past patterns, doing what everybody else did. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. So what does it mean to walk in the ways of Ahab? Well, you have influences from Syria to the north, Edom to the south, all of their different gods, and almost every single time it's some new version of Baal. It's some new version of Asherah. Unless we shake our fingers at those primitive people, if you understand who those gods were of, of the Syrians and Edomites, it's the same gods we have today. One of the gods is uh, known as uh, Shamash. He's the all-seeing one. He's the God of truth. 
He tells you what is true about yourself. He tells you what's true about your priorities. You start trusting in your own view of truth or this God's view of truth, not the God's view of truth. He's a God of treaties between kings and businesses. And so if you want to expand your business, if you want to expand your kingdom, you've got to trust in this God because he expands your wealth, expands your power. Well, man, we don't call him Shamash, but that's exactly what happens. I get addicted to success. I get addicted to, to, to expansion rather than putting God first in my life. Who's also the God of, uh, who can see through deceit. So you're trusting his view of what's true and what's not. He's the God that made the crops grow, which is like your job in agriculture. I'm trusting my job for my security. Then this other God that came from the Edomites, a little bit from the Syrians, was the God of love, sex, war, and hunting. She was also associated with Baal, although she was more like Baal's mom. And these were the kind of gods that, that Baal had, I mean, that Ahab had brought into Israel, the God of sensuality and pleasure and success and power. But all those things became more important than God. Well, things kind of take a turn for the worse here. Let me show you what happens next. So next part of the verse says, Now Ahaziah went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Haziel, the king of Syria, at Ramoth Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. Things aren't going well here. And King Joram went back to Jezreel to recover from the wounds from the Syrians that inflicted on him at Ramah. And he fought against Haziel, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. I mean, he, first he gets beat up in the battle, and now he's, he's sick, probably from infection from the wounds. So he's going to be showing you on a map to keep track of it all. There's a lot of words in there. Here's the map. Next slide. So Ahaziah to the south in Judah goes up north, picks up Joram and Israel, so they can come together, the two of them, and now they go up to Syria in the north, they have this big battle up there against the, the king there, Ahaziel. Doesn't go well, especially for Joram. He's now been wounded, he's now sick, and so they swing back around to Jezreel, and they're there in Jezreel. Who are you going to trust now you've been defeated? Who are you going to trust now that you're ill? And I think that's another question we should ask ourselves. We're all going to find ourselves in Jezreel one moment. And when you're in Jezreel, the question is, who do I turn to when I'm sick? What is that thing you turn to to find peace when you've been defeated? Do you turn to God or you turn to, for me, I turn to food, ice cream, watching too many movies, right? That's what I turn to. Then maybe eventually I'll ask God for his help. But when I'm sick, when I'm defeated, when I feel downcast, the thing I turn to, God's typically not on the top four, sadly. And I had an amazing moment this week to be in a sacred space to see someone who's turning to God in time of illness like I don't think I've ever seen before. I don't know if you know Stacy and, and Justin Roberts, but they go to our church, but you haven't seen them in four or five years. So Justin... Is his ALS, and he's, as he would tell you, on the final weeks, maybe final months of his life, as he's slowly become more and more paralyzed. The only way he can communicate is by blinking his eyes for yes or having his eyeballs go back and forth for no. He's got a machine that breathes for him in the last couple weeks or months he has left, and, but he does have a computer screen that he can text. So I got on the WhatsApp app, and Justin and I have been text, 
texting back and forth. And he said, Chad, I have ALS and I'm going to die soon. But I have grown so close to God through this time. He says, I'm not angry at God. I'm thinking, I'm a little angry at God for you. He said, I just wish I had known what really mattered before I got ALS. But it took ALS for me to see and focus on what really matters in life. His daughter and wife came in. They told me the story about him going to ALS Day at the Reds several years ago. And his daughter had this big sign that said, uh, my dad has ALS and he's my hero. Mr. Vada, will you come over and say hi? And she held this up and eventually the cameras got on her and Mr. Vado came over and look at her face. I mean, look at that face. Oh, my goodness. And he got a picture with she and her dad. That was a couple years ago. He said, Chad, would you be willing to come over and baptize me? I got a chance to perform their wedding many years ago. She said, I'd love to get baptized because last time I was just going through the motions. This time I wanted to be real. So I went over and we talked about his faith as he was able to communicate with uh, the speaker system hooked up to the keyboard. And I asked him, do you believe in God the Father? And I took water and I wiped it across his head. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Wiped across his head. And do you believe in Jesus Christ? And for a guy who can't communicate, I've never had more communicated to me in that moment. His eyes squeezed tight and just tears were coming out of the corner of his eyes. He just, it was, it was a sacred moment of glory. I heard somebody who was leaning into trusting and affirming God in his sickness in a way I have rarely seen before. I walked out to my car and I was just like, man, God, I want to have the kind of faith that Justin's having. And Justin, if you're watching today, Justin's got some big TV he just had installed in his uh, room. So Justin, thank you for your faith. Thank you for your encouragement. And it was such an honor to baptize you this week. So how about you? What do you turn to when you're sick, when you're defeated? We're going to find that most of the time we turn to our real God, not the one we profess. So let's look at our third lesson. The third lesson is that if you don't repent of those other kings, if you don't turn back to God, God will delay payment because God is so gracious and kind. But eventually the bill will come due. And the bill's going to come due for Jezebel. The bill's going to come due for Joram. And the bill's going to come due for Ahaziah. For generations they've rebelled against God. And so God is going to finally say, listen, I've been kind, I've been gracious, I've been merciful, but the bill is now going to come due. I can't delay payment anymore. So Elisha the prophet called one of his sons. Here's Elisha. He calls one of his servants, sons of the prophets, and said, Get ready. Take this flask of oil. Go to Ramoth-Gilead. When you arrive in that place, I want you to look for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. So basically, run over here and find this commander of the northern kingdom. Go in, make him rise up from among his associates, take him into the inner room, and then take the flask of oil, pour it over his head, and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee, and do not delay. And it seems to imply make a big scene. So go rush in, jump the oil on, you're the king! Ah! 
really weird. It just gets weirder as we go on. <clears throat> so where are we again? Keep track of everybody. Let me show you the family tree real quick. So we're up in the north. Joram is what we're talking about. He's the king that's been wounded and ill. And Jehu is a new king, just is about to be annoyed by Elisha. And so Joram's going to die, and Jehu's going to take over. And Jehu is going to be God's instrument of justice to take on all the evil that's been going on for generations. That's where we're at. Okay. So the young man, the servant, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. When he arrived, there were captains of the army sitting, and he said, I've got a message for you, commander. Jehu said, for which one of us? He said, for you, commander. Then he arose and went into the house. He poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. So this moment, Jehu is no longer the commander. He is now the king. The problem is there's currently a king. Now he's a little bitty king, right? A little bitty king because he's sick. A little bitty king because he's wounded. He can't do a lot. But he's about to take out the evil king, Joram. So that's where we're at. Okay, now at this point what's going to happen is God's going to give him instructions to go and stop the evil that's been happening for generations. The bill's going to come due for Jezebel, the bill's going to come due for Joram, then the bill's going to come due for Ahaziah. That's what's happening here. Okay, he says, here's your instructions. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that you could avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets. They have been killing off my prophets for generations and the blood of the innocents have been crying out to me. God's saying, I'm now going to use you to stop the evil that's been going on for generations. And the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. She personally did this. For the whole house of Ahab will perish. I'm going to cut them off from Ahab, all the males in his family. No more of the Ahab people leading us into evil and debauchery. Both bond and free. I'm going to make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, like the house of Basha, the son of Ahiah. I'm sure I didn't pronounce that right. And then, look at this death scene. We're going to get to this next week. Service is again rated PG for violence next week. The dogs shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there will be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. Wah! So he gives a speech, anoints him, gives that speech about that, and the dogs are going to eat her up. Wah! So Jehu comes out to the servants of his master, and one said to him, hey, is everything well? What happened in there? Why did this madman come to you? So however he ran out, he looked like a madman. So Jehu tries to play it off. He's like, well, you know those crazy prophets, you know, they're always eating crickets and who knows what. You know this man, his babble? They said, don't lie to us. No, something happened in there. It wasn't just the prophets being crazy. That's a lie. Tell us now. So he said, well, thus and thus he spoke to me, saying, the Lord says I've anointed you king over Israel. And so all of his buddies recognized, wow, our buddy's a new king. So they have like a little ceremony to, to, to honor he's the new king, and now he's going to do a mad rush to get to Jehu before Jehu finds out he's the new king. So the bill's going to come due now for Joram. So Jezebel won't die till next week, but she's basically, bill's coming due for her. Each man has a little ceremony. They all take off their robes. They put it down for the king. A little mock ceremony here or a little unconventional, unprepared ceremony. Each man hastened to take his garment, put it under him on top of the steps, and they blew trumpets. Jehu is king! So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, 
now conspired to go take out Joram. All right, for all the evil he's done. It continues. Now, kind of in case you lost track of everything, it kind of rehashes what we just said. So Joram had been defending Ramoth Gilead, remember he and all Israel, against Haziel, king of Syria. But remember, King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover. So that's what we're talking about here. So from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him when he fought with Haziel the king. Same stuff we've heard before, just kind of keeping track, make sure you know which Joram we're talking about. And Jehu said, if you are so minded, let no one leave or escape from the city to go and tell it to Jezreel. In other words, we got to get there before he finds out or he's going to defend against us. So Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram was laid up there, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah, had gone down to see him. So we're kind of catching up to this whole thing. So now Ahaziah is hanging out with Joram, two evil kings, in the same place. Remember, because this guy's sick. He's coming to take out both of them for the evil they've done for generations. So that's the story we're at now. Okay, so now Joram's going to lose his position. So a watchman's looking. Is there anybody coming? Any threats? The watchman stood on a tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came. He said, I see a company of men coming our way. And Joram said, well, get a horseman. Send them out. Let's go see if it's peace. Ask him, is it peace? The horseman went and met with Jehu. And he said, thus says the king, is it peace? <laughs> Jehu says to this horseman sent by Joram, what have you and your nation ever had to do with peace? You slaughter people. And you think now you're under threats about peace? No. <laughs> he gets the, the messenger they sent to get in line behind him. You get, follow me. We're going to go take out this guy. So then <laughs> the battle continues. Now, let me tell you what this might look like if you were there. That's a lot of words. Now let's try and picture it. So a place where a city is called a tell. So this is tell and Jezreel. So this is where... Joram is at. This is where Ahaziah is at. And right around the corner here, coming around the mountain, shall we come? So coming around the mountain is Jehu. So Jehu is coming from here, and he is going to come and attack them both in this place. Now, if you zoom in on that tell, you're going to see, sure enough, they have found this incredible fort there. They've excavated this area so far, archaeologists have, and this area. So this is where the tower was. In fact, there's one section of archaeology that shows probably where the tower was, where the messenger would have seen him. It's a giant tower here. And in those days, the tower was usually just on the edge of the tell. So you can see there at the bottom is a piece of a remnant of the tower that this messenger would be looking for for danger. Is there danger coming? Oh, my goodness, I see an oncoming battle coming our way. So if you were the messenger in that tower, you'd be climbing up that thing and looking out, seeing danger. And from that view, here you are, you would see right around the corner big dust clouds coming, and you're like, we're about to be attacked. Now, if I get the camera from the other angle, you'll see kind of what it looked like from the other direction. So Jehu's coming from this direction. He's circling around to come and get them here in Jezreel. So that's a story. That's a picture. A lot of danger. They've sent a messenger out. He's now behind Jehu coming. So he sends out a second messenger. And the second messenger ends up having the exact same experience. So the watchman up in the tower reported, the messenger went to them, but he's not coming back. So they sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, thus says the king, is this peace? And Jehu answered, what have you and your nation ever had to do with peace? 
turn around and follow me. So he's got two of Joram's messengers following him on his way in. So the watchman reported, this isn't going well, king. We lost two messengers. They're coming with them. We went up to them, and it's not coming back. And then because of how cloudy it is from the, from the, from the uh, dust, I love this line. He's not coming back, and the driving I see is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi. So apparently when he rode his chariot, it was pretty chaotic. It's like, that guy's a bad driver. I mean, he's just just furious driving. For he drives furiously. Then Joram said, oh, no. Make ready. His chariot was made ready. Then Joram, king of Israel, guy who's sick and small there, and Ahaziah, king of Judah come to visit him, went out, each in his chariot, and they went out to meet Jehu. So now we've got this a battle about to occur. He's now come in, and there's a battle between all three of these in the same location, all here in Jezreel. All right. So Joram and Ahaziah met Jehu on the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. Who's that? Mm, wait, you see. Now it happened that when Joram saw Jehu, he said again, is it peace, Jehu? <laughs> and Jehu says, what peace? As long as the harlotries of your mother Jezreel and her witchcraft are so many. Ooh. What you have done to the people, the innocents you have killed, the harlotries you brought into our nation, there's no peace as long as the corruption of your mom. He's making fun of his mom, right? But his mom's got a long history of what she's done to the nation. Then Joram turned around and fled, the guy who was wounded, and said to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah, let's get out of here. So Jehu drew his bow, full strength, shot Jehoram, and I told you they had nicknames, right? Talking about the same guy. So Joram, and then he gives us his nickname, Jehoram, same guy, shot him between his arms, and the arrow came out his heart, and he sat down or sank down the chariot. Then Jehu said to Bidkah, his captain, pick him up, throw him into the tract of the field of Naboth. There's Naboth again, the Jezreelite. Huh. For remember, oh, this has something to do with prophecy. For remember when you and I were riding together behind Ahab, his father, many, many years ago? You remember the Lord laid a burden upon him and said, surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons says the Lord, and I will repay you in this plot. Now therefore take and throw on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. All right, that's a lot of words. What in the world's going on? Let me show you a map of where we're at. If you go back into 1 Kings, Jezebel and Ahab had all the power and all the might, but there was one particular little vineyard that they loved. And they tried to negotiate with this guy named Naboth who owned a vineyard right there. Naboth's like, I don't want to sell to the king. I like my own. So they had the ultimate imminent domain. They came in and said, huh, you're not going to sell it? We'll kill you. <coughs> and they, Ahab and Jezebel, took Naboth's vineyard. And this was the last straw. They killed lots of people. But God's like, you've now exploited the poor man Naboth when you had plenty of vineyards on your own. So through Elijah back in 1 Kings, it said, you're going to be held accountable they've had all these years to repent, and they haven't. But you will die on this very piece of land. And God has or orchestrated all of these pieces. The Jezebel and the descendants, like Joram, will die on the very piece of land 
that they exploited and killed a man named Naboth so many years ago. You see, you can delay payment because God is so gracious and God is so kind. But the bill will eventually come due. And God loves you and I so much that he sends prophet after prophet after warning after warning. He says, please turn around. I want to be the king, not a king in your life. And the other kings in your life are causing devastation to the land, devastation to your relationships, devastation to, to the family. Make me the king and let's get this thing back on track. But as we've learned today, we always walk in the ways of the king that we worship. So you might today have a to-do list of things you want to work on. I need to work on being more patient, work on more kind, I need to work on less obsessed with such and such. But if it's true that we always walk in the ways of the king we worship, then don't work on your walk. Work on what you worship. Say, God, my problem is not how I'm walking. That's just a symptom. I need to watch what I worship. I'm worshiping comfort. I'm worshiping approval. I'm worshiping self. I need to realign my heart to worship him, who he is, what he has done. See, here's what happens when I'm king versus when I worship him as king. This is pretty convicting. At least it was for me. See, when I am set myself up as king, when I'm worshiping myself, my heart is self-directed. I demand that God serves my needs. I deserve comfort. I deserve better circumstances. I want to be to reign in my life. I want to be in control of my life. I use God to expand my kingdom and my priorities. I am all about my mission and how God can help me accomplish my mission. I realize none of you are convicted right now, but I'm kind of convicted. I am the king who knows best. But when I worship him as king, my heart is God-directed. I surrender my needs to God. I don't really like what you're asking, God, but I'm going to lay it down before you. I want God's reign and control more than my own. I want God to use me to serve his kingdom and priorities. I'm all about his mission, and I obey the king that knows best. Don't work on your walk. Watch what you worship. What is it that captures your heart, that you've wrapped your heart in, the place you go when you feel down or feel sick, or feel defeated. I invite the band to come out and lead us in not just talking about worship, but realigning our heart toward the king and laying down anything else we have, any sin, any temptation, any other priority that's not in its proper place. Father, I confess, Father, I have so many kings that are lined up before you. Dumb things, silly things, things that feel so real and so important. But God, I just want to lay them down before you. The valuable things in my life that I think I can't live without, God, I just lay them before you. I set them before you. Help me to see you as the one that took the bullet from me. The one whose words and promises free me and lead me in the way that I should go. Amen.